Welcome to 30 Minute Theology. This is your host, John Bacon. With me today is one of my best friends, Father Daniel. Father Daniel, good morning. Good morning, John. Glad to have you here. It's great to be here. Well, today we are talking about the unity of faith and reason. And unlike most episodes, today I would like to begin with a quote, not from a saint, nor a doctor from the church, not even a Catholic, but someone who will be well-known, perhaps too well-known to some of us, Martin Luther. Martin Luther famously said uh, more than once in his sermons, quote, reason is the devil's greatest whore. <laughs> now, if that's shocking or offensive to you, that's a good thing. Um, I thought about continuing with his sermon, but it actually gets uh, worse. <laughs> I didn't want to have to use the explicit label on this podcast. But um, let's look at that from Luther's perspective. Faith is good, and reason is bad. Mm. Faith mm. leads you to God, and reason leads you away. Um, implicit with this is the belief that if Luther wouldn't go so far to say, well, the devil created reason, which I don't think he would have said that, mm-hmm. um, but he does seem to have this sense that reason plays straight into the hand of the devil. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Father Daniel, before we move on with kind of examining the logic or illogic of this attitude, is this an attitude that you've encountered before in ministry? Yeah, yeah. I would say on many occasions, both as somebody kind of being on the receiving end of teaching and uh, probably, sadly, being a teacher myself, I've maybe employed this (laughs) tactic from time to time, Uh uh, but I, I would seek to avoid it in the future. I would say... It's usually used when uh, somebody doesn't actually know how to answer a question. And I think that there's a difference between acknowledging the fact that uh, God is beyond reason. Reason is something that kind of comes out of creation. It's something that uh, fits with the order of creation, but it it can't define God. So Um, a Christian's faith is challenged, and they don't know how to respond. They feel guilty or insecure about that, like they should have an answer, so yes. it turns into a critique of reason itself, Indeed, say. Indeed, rather than just kind of admitting like, hey, there's certain questions we can't answer about God. Yeah, um, certainly not that I can answer. Right, right. Yeah. So it, it's tempting in that situation to basically be like, uh, you're, you're using something, you're using reason as a weapon against God, and, and this is somehow sinful. I, I think this is just a wrong approach. Yeah, well, I know that uh, I was one of those people for years, and (laughs) a particular verse of Scripture that seemed to confirm my attitude and Luther's is this. This is uh, from the New Testament, Paul's epistle to the Colossians, in the second chapter in the eighth verse. The Holy Apostle Paul writes, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy Mm. and empty deceit, according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the universe, and not according to Christ. Mm. So St. Paul says, see that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit, or I think it's translated empty thinking in some translations. Mm -hmm. So uh, why would we not conclude from this verse, um, obviously standing by itself right here, (laughs) out of context, but why would we not conclude from this that philosophy or reason are um, at enmity with the faith. 
Well, St. Paul is using reason as he speaks this. I mean, he, he's, he's using words. He's using a certain kind of logic. Do this, don't do that. Mm-hmm. These two things are different from each other. Uh, so he's using reason to, to speak and to teach. What I hear when I hear the word philosophy, um, having studied philosophy in college, is, is system, right? Philosophical system. And mm-hmm. I think that's what he has in mind here is something that's been created maybe through reason, uh, yeah. through words, some kind of concept of the universe that a human being has created, a system that's been created by that's human right. beings. Which we can also do with theology as well. We can. I don't know which particular philosophy the Apostle Paul is uh, disappointed with, because there's a variety of ones to be ticked off about Indeed. in um, his era, but um, whether he has in mind something like um, sophistry or mm-hmm. or um, on the philosophical end or Gnosticism on the theological end, right? these are very... Um, humanistic systems of belief in a in a negative sense not not in that they have a high view of humanity yep but that these simply are projections of unredeemed human desire well um i think we could pile examples from the new testaments of the apostle paul utilizing reason as you point out also if if we take uh the epistle to the hebrews as being written by the apostle paul and if it's not, it's still in the New Testament, so it's sacred scripture. Right. Whoever right. writes uh, the epistle to the Hebrews is utilizing Platonic um, language. Yep. And we're not saying that Christianity is Platonism, because it's not. But nonetheless, Christianity has, uh, throughout the centuries, deemed it useful for uh, theological discussion to utilize the best gift philosophy gives. Absolutely. We can look a little bit farther into church history and uh, contrast two more figures, St. Justin Martyr and Tertullian, who both contributed um, really wonderful writings. But uh, Father Daniel, have you heard the quote before? Uh, by Tertullian. I don't know where he posed it, but he mm-hmm. says rhetorically, what hath Jerusalem to do with Athens? Yes, yes. It's, a, it's often quoted, usually again when somebody doesn't want to have to answer a question. But uh, certainly, I think in their day and age, Athens, this concept of the school uh, of academia, was a powerful force. And you can imagine why somebody like Tertullian would say, hey, this thing exists outside of Christianity. It existed before Christianity and isn't necessarily our friend. But that's, I think, thinking a little too pejoratively about it. I do too, and I contrast that with a figure like St. Justin Martyr, who if you have any quotes from him that you love, feel free to share, but just background on St. Justin Martyr. He had been a disciple of philosophy right, uh, for years and years and had really studied the best of what he can find. He was, had a very gifted and curious mind. And one day he found uh, a poor old man on the beach mm. who seemed to have peace and wisdom and understanding. Mm-hmm. And he asked the man, well, what system did he follow? What was he? And his answer was, he was a Christian. Right. And St. Justin Martyr had this conversion experience where Christianity fulfilled mm-hmm. all the questions that philosophy 
had never been able to answer. Exactly. And yet he did not go the route of Tertullian and present it to his enemies. He actually, as an evangelist and as an apologist for the faith, right. demonstrated um, the compatibility of faith and reason. He's the one who coined the phrase, the is it the logos pramatikos? Exactly. That's exactly. right, the seminal word that if Christ is the word that became flesh and dwelt among us, then which logos also means reason, Right. then he is the reason present in all true reason. Indeed. So whatever good was ever found in Plato or Aristotle or Socrates, it actually did serve the purpose of Christ to prepare human minds to receive him. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think a lot of the philosophy in that day and age, some of it was speculative, but we have far more speculative philosophy nowadays than Mm -hmm. they did back then. People in, in that time, you think of um, a lot of the philosophies that came shortly after Alexander the Great and then the kind of the collapse of his empire, they were concerned with how to live. That's right. So they, they wanted to understand how you could live a, a good life. And so in that sense, we see a compatibility between a philosophy as pursued by somebody like Justin Martyr in his pre-Christian time and then what he finds in the fulfillment of Christianity. Here's a man of peace, right? This old man on the beach. Here's a man who's found how to live well. And so in that sense, he finds the true philosophy in in Christ. That's right. And uh, I think to a large extent, that's a bridge between uh, the Jewish scriptures mm-hmm. and the faith of the Jewish people with uh, the best of philosophy. Absolutely. Philosophy, as I said in episode two, literally is the love of wisdom. Exactly. And you look at wisdom literature in uh, the Old Testament, think about Proverbs 8 or the Book of Wisdom. Right. Wisdom cries aloud in the streets, come to me. Indeed. And uh, early Christians saw wisdom as Christ himself. So it's hard to imagine how someone who loves and seeks wisdom, even if they don't find the answers, is somehow running away from Christ. Exactly. And uh, just to put a fine point on it, St. Justin Martyr, if we have any doubts about his... Um, his philosophical approach to the faith, St. Justin dies a martyr, hence the name St. Justin Martyr. Exactly. Whereas St. Tertullian, well, not St. Tertullian, the reason he's not a saint is despite <laughs> the usefulness of his writings, yes. he, because of his distrust in reason, he actually became part of a cult right. known as, is it Montanism? That sounds right. Yep. Yeah, and uh, believe something like he was the uh, incarnation of the Holy Spirit. The so, leaders of of that cult believed something this like this. Yes. Yeah. So an example of how a great mind, when it distrusts its own faculties, mm-hmm. can actually be deceived. Mm-hmm. Um, so as Catholics, we believe that faith and reason are not an enmity, and that actually they serve one another really well. I would like to go back to the Protestant Reformation for a minute now, now that we have given some examples prior to it in the early sure. patristic era. Peter Kraft, a Catholic philosopher who, who I'm really indebted to, he describes the history of Western thought in this way. Mm-hmm. He says that there are two streams, maybe one creek, that form the, this great river of Western development of theology, philosophy, culture, and civilization. Mm. And those two streams would be uh, pre-Christian Judaism yep. and Greek 
philosophy. Absolutely. Hellenism. The creek that spills in as well is a uh, pagan myth mm-hmm. because it's, it's imaginative faculty is also helpful, but you can just, you can see this if you hike and, and you spend much time in water, like we do here in Montana here, um, that the more the river narrows, the farther it gets from its source, the stronger and more powerful it gets until it diverts into forks again. Absolutely. At which it can cease to become a river and become a swamp. Right. And that's what happened at the Protestant Reformation. What's so interesting is um, a lot of the Reformation and the so-called Enlightenment, I like Peter Craig's term for it, the Endarkenment, um, they are a rejection of two things. They are a rejection of church authority. Mm-hmm. They are a rejection of divine revelations claim to coincide with Christ's gift to the church. Right. But they're also a rejection of classical philosophy, mm-hmm. particularly Aristotle. I think about Martin Luther on the one hand, on the side of the Reformation, who couldn't stand Aristotle, couldn't stand Aquinas. And um, I want to be sensitive to Luther, and I think there's some, probably some psychological reasons why he felt that way. He was a deeply troubled man. Right. But uh, here's someone I don't feel sorry for, my relative, Francis Bacon, who is, <laughs> from what I could tell, simply an egomaniac, mm. um, failed a test on Aristotle mm-hmm. and didn't get the professorship he wanted, so carved out modern philosophy. And we don't need to dive too deep down that rabbit hole there. <laughs> but what you have is you have the divorce of faith and reason. And so much of... Um, patristic and medieval development of Catholic theology is is built on this belief that those two are not an enmity and should not be divorced, but are actually a, a divinely sanctioned union. Absolutely. It's understandable what the Reformers are doing because I think in their desire to go back to a more pure gospel, I don't know mm-hmm. if this is the exact word, kind of phrasing that they would use, but they're wanting to peel away the human elements and get back to this pure thing, but they're incarnate human beings. That's this right. logic, this use of reason is an inescapable part. So in, I think, their attempt to escape the use of reason, they end up using it, but in problematic ways. Yeah. Ways that are hidden and cloaked to them because they don't actually think they're employing it. And this is where manipulation, spiritual manipulation and confusion becomes uh, prevalent. And then where true uh, deviance can unfortunately uh, come in and, and take control of certain movements like they did in the Protestant Reformation. That's right. I mean, with, without having to uh, criticize any of Calvin or Luther's motives, um, I think it's fairly objective to say that this crisis of authority, this crisis of reason that was just structurally embedded in their schism with the unity of the church. Yes. They had to appeal to an authority, and it was not reason. Right. It was not the tradition that preceded them. It was not the magisterium yep. uh, of the church. So they kind of had to appeal to their personality. Exactly. Which I think if they saw what that's become today, they'd probably roll over in their grave. I agree. Um, I agree. But it, it's a it's a tragic, tragic outcome That's that's really destined from the beginning mm-hmm. so uh, i used a second ago the image of a divorce of faith and reason you know one of part of one of the most fruitful examples i think in our catholic faith of this 
union of faith and reason. And Father Daniel, you talked about how we're embodied creatures, how we cannot escape our humanity right. and our knowledge of God. I think about Pope John Paul II's Theology of the Body. Mm-hmm. It came out in the 20th century. One of the just most beautiful, compelling, and prophetic works I've ever encountered. So if we use Theology of the Body as an example for a minute, which Theology of the Body is, um, I can't give a good enough summary here, but simply it's, it's the Catholic understanding of how we know God, uh, not only through our senses, but at an even deeper level, how our bodies speak of divine realities. Mm-hmm. Um, Peter Crave says this, if you read the first verse of Genesis chapter 4, it says, Adam knew Eve. Right. If you read the next clause, the result was not a book, but a baby. Indeed. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a little bit corny, but it's true that whenever in Scripture you read the phrase, uh, a man knew his wife, mm-hmm. we know what that knowledge consists of. Right. And uh, trust me, this isn't going to get weird, but I want to think about this for a second. Um, in my second episode on epistemology, we looked at how we have two faculties of knowing. Mm-hmm. One is analytical, one is intuitive. Um, and I compared these to kind of masculine and feminine faculties of the human mind or the human soul mm-hmm. because uh, bringing it back to to bodies and babies without being too explicit i think we can safely say that for the generation of offspring mm-hmm. here's what you need you need uh, a man and woman mm-hmm. who entrusts himself to one another and that in that entrusting of themselves to one another to yield union and procreation there is an active posture and there is a passive posture. Mm-hmm. Receptive. A receptive, mm-hmm. that's right. Active and receptive, thank you. Mm-hmm. And um, these active and receptive postures, modes of being, are not at enmity but are the exact point of union. Mm-hmm. And I compared in my last episode reason to the active faculty of the mind mm-hmm. to interject questions to seek structure, to seek understanding, Mm -hmm. whereas faith is that receptive Mm -hmm. posture of the soul that simply yields itself to answers, Mm -hmm. Uh, which I think is no coincidence that the highest model of faith in in our Catholic faith is the Virgin Mary, who when the angel of the Lord appeared to her, she received it, that truth. Now, she also received it with her reasoning, Mm -hmm. but she received the truth by faith, and she contemplated this in her heart Mm -hmm. using reason. Mm -hmm. So we've got the two dimensions of faith, of of knowing, faith and reason, and when faith and reason come together, there's a unitive and procreative process that takes place. The two come together, things come together, and new thought emerges. Hmm. Well, my question is, is if we trace the Enlightenment up to the present day, and if we, tra- and if we trace the Protestant Reformation up to the present day, mm-hmm. here in the present, do they know more or less of God than they did at the beginning? They seem to know far less. There seems to be far more skepticism. I mean, the Enlightenment began as a very positive movement there was uh-huh. a, i mean there were literally the eventually the positivists um 
But yes, it begins as, as something that has content, it has shape to it. But really, all of this is indebted to Christi- the Christianity that comes before it. Yeah. Right? All, all of the virtues. We can even think about uh, some of the uh, Enlightenment uh, writers, including one of our own founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, how he sees in Christianity virtue. He sees in the teaching of Christ some kind of virtue, but he wants to write out all the miracles. And so there's a kind of uh, loss of content that eventually takes place because what is actually, as you said, breathing life into this whole thing that actually yeah. gives us the ability to talk about it, to have any real content in response. Well, that's that's the Holy Spirit. It's it's the Logos. It's God, the Holy Trinity, speaking into our existence. And so when you cut yourself off from, from that uh, source, mm-hmm. well, you, you babble. You just start to babble, and reason becomes uh, rootless because it doesn't have content on its own. It's that's a, right. It's a system. It's a way to to think about, to ponder about the gift that's been given. And if there's no gift that's been received because you've rejected it, well, reason does become a problem. It becomes a vain pursuit. That's right. Um, in the same way that Pope John Paul II's theology of the body is written in a response to this sort of spiritism, mm-hmm. and by spiritism I mean this understanding of the human person that reduces our actual essence to the spirit mm-hmm. and discards the body as just like some sort of like thing we we wear or carry around but it's not really us yeah the catholic church um protects us from these sort of reductionistic understandings of what it is to be human it does because those reductionistic understandings they're in the end they're they're dehumanizing they are i mean it's common sense but when we reject a certain component mm-hmm. of what makes us us mm-hmm. we're rejecting part of us absolutely and um if the body and spirit are not at enmity it's also true that there's that trust this deep into intuitive trust and faith of the heart Mm -hmm. is not at war Mm -hmm. with the understanding of the mind and that the divorce of the two ultimately leads to very dehumanizing paths absolutely i mean we can think of the kind of cold material scientism that a lot of young people live in today, um, where they, they just don't know where in their worldview where to place things like love or relationships. Mm-hmm. But then I can think on the other end of the spectrum of, um, without name-calling any denominations, um, think about a congregation that really distrusts reason and, and, and all the potentials for a cult of personality to exactly. exist and really disregard people. And uh, the Catholic Church's insistence on the unity of faith and reason, um, it's, it's both a, it's a call to responsibility, but it's also an affirmation of the human person as created by God. Absolutely. It's, it's a call to have an openness of heart to the Lord, mm-hmm. to have the humility of heart, unlike Lucifer, mm-hmm. like the Virgin Mary, to receive the Word of God as the Word of God. It's also uh, a responsibility, like the Virgin Mary, to ponder these things in our heart, exactly. to have faith, seeking understanding. And as we grow in faith and understanding, we, we grow into the person we're meant to be. you have any final thoughts to add to this conversation, Father Daniel? Any closing points about this unity of faith and reason? 
Yeah, so this is a this is a topic I love. It's it's such an important issue. I love it because I've struggled with it. I, I went to a college, uh, which was a great book school in which a kind of hardcore rationality was emphasized, and yeah. went through my own reaction to that. Um, embraced uh, Eastern Christianity, Eastern Orthodox Orthodox Christianity in that period, maybe as an overreaction. But so it's a it's a deeply important topic to me. One of the most helpful things I would, I would just love to share um, in, in how I've sorted through this faith and reason question is Euclidean geometry, right? Sounds a little weird, sounds yeah. a little quirky, but uh, I, I hated math in school growing up, but I did, I did love geometry. Geometry, uh, right? Euclid is the one who gives us this beautiful geometry that we still uh, build houses with today. Huh. And I think reason is like geometry. It's a uh-huh. good image for us. We need uh, to use those relationships, those basic relationships that just come out of physical reality in order to build a home, mm-hmm. right? But geometry in and of itself is just a thing. It's, a, it's an order. It's a language maybe that can be spoken, but it isn't anything in and of itself. You can use geometry to build a really ugly inhuman kind of house or building that bad things are going to be uh, done in or you can use uh, geometry to build a home a home that will protect a family from all the elements or a house of worship and mm-hmm. i think that's what reason is for us reason is a tool built into this uh created world in which we live that we can do fabulous fabulous things with hmm. but um that's just what it is. It's a tool. It's not the source of truth. But we need it, nevertheless, to take this beautiful life, this content that God has given us in, in this world. Uh, and in that synergistic way, we can actually do beautiful things if we use this tool correctly. Mm-hmm. So abandoning it just because an ugly house can be built with it is a bad idea. Um, so let's use it. You know, let's let's delve into things. Let's talk about things, uh, but recognize that uh, we do it about content, about things that God has given us first and foremost, uh, before geometry or reason ever came to exist. His grace, His divine life shared with us. That's right, Father Daniel. Are there any books or any articles that you'd recommend? Any resources of the church for someone who? Would like to read more into this? Ooh, uh, only nerdy ones that I can think of off the top of my head. I mean, of course, um, St. John Henry Newman is a, an incredible man that we could talk a lot about with respect to uh, philosophy, reason, and, and uh, his development of doctrine and how he talks about that is a, is a great study that any of us should go to. But, and his uh, final work, Grammar of Ascent. Yes. It's a very difficult read, but if if uh if someone's not up to the task of reading it, which I understand it blew me away. Yes. Uh any articles explaining his grammar of ascent would be very helpful. Absolutely. He he's phenomenal along those lines. A couple other thing people that I would say are, are excellent on this topic. Um maybe in a sort of oblique um kind of way would be Thomas Howard, uh beautiful author. He wrote uh, Chance or the Dance. He's written a number of books. Oh yeah. But he talks about the medieval mindset, and, and he talks about this issue of reason and philosophy and, and interplay there. Uh-huh. Um, so that's a fabulous book. Another author that uh, is maybe the 
on the more nerdy end of the scale would be uh, Mortimer Adler. I mean, he was no nerd. He was a phenomenal classicist. That's right. Uh, eventually became Catholic. Uh, one of his books that deals with these questions are uh, Ten Philosophical Mistakes. A great okay. book. And, and he's writing in you know, the late, uh, late modern period about how we've used reason inappropriately. But another really fun read if you ever have the chance to, to find that book somewhere in some used bookstore. Excellent. Thank you, Father Daniel. Another that jumps to mind for me is simply um, the declarations of um, Vatican I itself. Of course. Uh, the Church's Council of Vatican I back in the 19th century is largely about <laughs> the relationship of faith and reason, mm -hmm. the integrity of the two, the necessity of the two, and uh, kind of a practical definition of, of how the two work together. Absolutely. Leo XIII, Pope Leo XIII, has some excellent encyclicals that deal with this question as well. Beautiful author. Yeah. Incredible Pope. And as a closing thought, um, I think it's helpful to recognize that what the Catholic Church affirms by faith, um, Aristotle himself anticipated in some ways by reason. Right. Just so this doesn't sound like a very like pious, um, only religion-based answer. I mean, there's there's just some common sense to this. Uh Aristotle and his theory of induction demonstrates that for any for reason to be utilized, there has to be a premise that is asserted and not proven. Mm -hmm. The point is that if every premise is up for debate, we actually can never have a debate no, in, because we will exactly. get trapped in an infinite regress yes. of defining terms. Yes. Um, so in order for there to be meaningful utilization of reason, discussion, conversation, there has to be a shared value, a shared belief yep. that is presumed a grammar. rather than proven. A yep. grammar that we just we just have. It's right? that grammar of assent. Yes. Which, if you're wondering why America is what it is, it's probably because we have no shared grammar of assent anymore. Exactly. Which is an episode in itself. But Father Daniel, thank you so much for this talk. I it's my joy, John. Hope it blesses our listeners. Thirty Minute Theology is a podcast provided by the missionaries of Saint Patine, an apostolate dedicated to catechesis and evangelization. We exist to make the good news of Jesus Christ and the teachings of His Church accessible and understood. To learn more about the missionaries of Saint Patine and to access materials related to this podcast, please visit our website, saintfotini.force.com. The Thirty Minute Theology is helpful to you. Please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts, and please consider supporting our work. Thank you for joining us.